publishing industry has faced a lot of challenges in the 21st century, from ebooks to Amazon. The latest, the global pandemic. And while this seems like it could be a good opportunity to capitalize on e-commerce from people stuck at home, it's a grim forecast for the shopfronts that line our favorite high streets. However, independent bookshops tend to have loyal customers, and New York is known for its steely resilience, so can one retailer in particular ride this out? Today, we speak with the founder of one of New York's leading independent bookstore businesses, Sarah McNally, from her home in Greenwich Village. In 2004, just as many of the big commercial bookstores were dying out, McNally launched her first McNally Jackson store in Nolita. Since then, a new generation of booksellers and consumers alike has blossomed, and the brand now gives its name to four bookshops and two stationary outlets across the city. But will McNally Jackson's rapid expansion mode put it on hold now? I'm Tyler Brule, and I'm delighted to welcome Sarah McNally to the Chief's edition of The Big Interview. Sarah, I'd like to start maybe last December, last November, and look at the the state of the bookselling industry, looking at the state of retail. If we can go back six or seven months, how did you see the world at that point? The relationship that you would have with the core customer coming in every day, the relationship with competitors online, your own development in an online capacity, as, as much as, of course, what you've been doing with bricks and mortar. Uh, where were we at the end of 2019? I think that the bookselling in America is feeling very, very, very bullish. I myself opened two stores in the six months before COVID, oddly. I opened one last, not quite six months, I noticed one last August, September, and then one at the very, very end of February, February 28th. My plan this year had been to make my website quite extraordinary, which I mean, I told <laughs> I told James Daunt, who's your countryman, that that was my plan for the year. And he said he'd done that at Daunt Books. And he found that fulfilling online orders could start to feel a little dispiriting. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you'll see. And because of COVID, we are now certainly seeing that it is a little bit dispiriting just doing orders from the internet. It's certainly not why any of us signed up for this business. So six, seven months ago, we were in massive expansion mode. I just opened my third and fourth kind of large format bookstore. I was negotiating very seriously to do two other large format bookstores in New York. I felt that we'd sort of hit a medium with Amazon that was maintainable. I mean, all of the stores were profitable, modestly profitable, and customers who understood the message of what an independent bookstore brought to their lives were supportive. And I, it felt like a very, um, it felt like a like a happy world for us. You talk about feeling bullish in that period. What what were sort of three elements? And you, you cite Amazon, and I do want to come back to your, your point about the, the dispiriting notion of, of just sending out books. But did you feel that we'd reached a point by the, yeah, whether it was the middle of 2019, the end of 2019, going into 2020, that core book consumer had really sort of reconciled the relationship as to why they would go online versus why they wanted to go into a physical bookshop at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon? I think so. And the other thing that happened in New York is when I first opened the bookstore in 2004, there was the ecosystem of bookstores as we knew it then was dying. Like I was sort of eye open just as a lot of the old guard bookstores were closing. It was it was almost extraordinary. And then a lot of the Barnes and Nobles in New York City closed. And in the last sort of five, eight years, there had been a real growth of indies across New York, um, not just my own. There'd been the Brooklyn, which never really had had a strong indie bookstore community, really got online with that. And 
a lot of stores open that they're not big stores, but they have big social media elements, big marketing elements, and they're amazing at galvanizing their communities. And so I think that being part of an independent bookstore community in New York became a viable option for young people living here. And it was a different, like when I first moved to New York, the independent bookstore community was sort of radically intellectual. You could go to St. Mark's bookstore at 11.45 PM and buy, you know, a book of critical theory. And that's not the independent bookstore. You can do that at my store. We sell a lot of critical theory, but the independent bookstore that have arisen since then are much more frontless fiction driven, really fun, often owned by young women. And it's, 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 it's sort of a fun world. They've started festivals, the Brooklyn Book Festival that has a lot of indie book selling components. They've become very, very, very smart about having big events. Greenlight in Brooklyn rents out enormous theaters to have huge celebrities and makes a lot of money doing fun, huge events. You know, Books Are Magic has painted the wall outside their store. It's a bookstore called Books Are Magic. They've painted a huge mural outside their store. This is Books Are Magic that people love photographing themselves or themselves with their kids in front of this. And they wear t-shirts saying Books Are Magic. And it's, it was a fun time in independent book selling. And personally, my company had become large enough that we could really look at kind of expanding into neighborhoods in New York that didn't have bookstores in a serious way. And also the reputation of my business had grown to a point where landlords were approaching me after, you know, years of my having to grovel to landlords, begging them to lend to me that I'd proven myself as a viable tenant. And so that it was possible to make real estate deals that were much more workable. Sarah, do you think this is a moment of, of pause on one side? Of course, we know there's been this interruption since since March. And of course, many places around the world, you know, here in Switzerland, you know, we're certainly lifting from this and bookstores, chain and otherwise have reopened. Do you see this as a moment of pause and then and pick up? And, and if there is a pickup, do you see signs of positivity? Because there has been so much talk about the re-engagement of community. There's been so much discussion about the importance of the butcher and the baker and the local pharmacist and that we realize that digitization has disconnected people. And yes, it's great to get your food delivered to, to the front door, but there's just been so much humanity has been removed and, and the world has become so transactional that do we move back into a world of the cozy? Could we be emerging or could we re-emerge in, in potentially a better place? What you're saying sounds so beautiful. I'm not sure it really fits what's happening in America. It's funny, I had dinner with some Europeans last night. We had an outdoor picnic and they're German. And they said in Europe, there's such a hunger to get things started again and such a recognition that they've lost something that they have to rebuild. And here, I think because almost all my customers and everyone I know doesn't like the president, his vehemence to open the country has resulted in Americans not wanting to open the country and, and not trusting the government to do so in a safe way. I'm not feeling that there's a hunger to reopen. I'm not feeling things will go back to normal anytime soon. Americans don't feel that their leadership is taking care of them. Moreover, the government has done nothing to relieve the burdens of storefront retail during the pause. I mean, I've had to pay rent at all six of my stores before we can even do outdoor pickup. It will be three months of rental rates ticking. And then when we are allowed to reopen, it will be just taking things to customers at the door. All my business models are dependent on really crowded stores. My stores are really busy. So there's no way they can afford their rent without being busy. I mean, that's, that's, they're in high rent 
areas with a lot of foot traffic for that reason. So I think here it's going to be a little more depressing because we don't have the government support to help us pay our bills during this time, and nor will we have it to help us pay our bills during kind of the twilight economy that is going to follow. Like when Europe reopened, the stores reopened. When American stores are reopening, they're reopening. The phase one does not allow customers in stores. It allows them to come to the door and have something maybe in a lot of America it involves people driving up, not getting out of their car and having an employee put the purchase in the trunk. In New York, it sometimes involves people coming up and the employee coming and putting their purchase in a foyer and then running back and the person picking the thing out of the foyer so they don't even talk to the employee. Sometimes it can involve um, meeting somebody at a door that is blocked off so the customer can't walk into the store and there's some sort of desk or counter pulled up to the door where the interaction can take place. The opening here will not be triumphant. The government response has not given the people confidence and the open uppers have the idea of opening up has coalesced so strongly on the far right here that anyone who doesn't feel themselves to be far right i think can't help but feel opposed to it just we go back to those landlords and and you were talking about landlords who were enticing you to come to new developments but what about if you can discuss it up to a point what has the relationship been with you know certainly with current landlords i'm standing in our space in the middle of zurich which is a mix of commercial and retail we've enjoyed 70% off without a, a very advanced discussion that was the relationship that the landlord wanted to to put across and we've had you know similar maybe not as generous situations elsewhere but has there been that recognition on the part of of some of your landlords as well that we're all in this together no that has not been the situation no i have two of my stores are on percentage rent deals with their landlords because they are with larger developers and so we're partners and we are in this together, we take risks together, and we do well together. So those stores are fine because the rent at 0% of zero is zero. Um, the other four landlords, one store gave me 25% off, which is, it sounds like a lot, but the rent at that store is so expensive that still just during this close, I will have accrued over $150,000 in rental income while my store is completely closed. One landlord gave me one month free, which again, when you're closed three months and then op reopened into just curbside pickup, it's something, but not a lot. And the other two landlords have not offered me anything as of yet. So there's a slight relief, but truly nothing that ameliorates the risk. And I, this is something that my landlords seem to be more generous to me than most of my friends, particularly in restaurants, are finding that their landlords are to them. And it's interesting because it's clearly a systemic problem. Every restaurant, store and service in New York is closed unless you're doing a little bit of takeout or you're a grocery store or a wine or food store, something that in America they've deemed essential services, which sometimes I feel infuriated. I'll walk by sort of a Dunkin' Donuts or a chocolate shop and I'll think you're an essential service and a bookstore isn't an essential service. But here we are. So there is a systemic problem where everyone is closed and not making any money. And we already had sky high rents in New York, to, which I could talk about if you'd like, about how our rents kind of were levered up that, up the chain by the complicated borrowing structures of our landlords. So we have unsustainable rents already in New York. We already had vacancy that multiple studies had placed at 20% across the city. 
even in where two of my stores are in Soho and Greenwich Village, which are the most beautiful, lovely shopping neighborhoods in the city, arguably. And our our vacancy rate had already risen dramatically in early 2020 before anyone had ever heard of the coronavirus had already risen to 13.4%, I think it was. So we had a vacancy crisis because of high rents before this started. And this stunning thing talking to everybody I know is how even now, even with this closure, even facing a massive recession or depression coming out of this, landlords would rather have tenants leave, would rather have an empty storefront than negotiate with them or give them relief. It's been shocking and upsetting. And I I do keep hoping that the city or state government will step in in some guise, to do something to help us. Yeah, as you said, it, it it was a depressing picture, and as you know, we were we were not quite neighbors, but of course, you know, we had our own shop over on Hudson and Charles, and and the same thing. We just saw one shop after the other being driven out by high rents, then no scope to to renegotiate. Also, sadly, it's not just a story of New York. It's a story which, you know, really travels across much of the US, parts of Canada, and and something that also London suffers from as well. And and you just we wonder, you know, when is the penny going to drop that this is it's not sustainable. Forget about from a business point of view, but just when you when you look at community. And I think you you, you know we want to make this hopefully an uplifting show by the time we we, we get to the end of it in in ten minutes, but it, it is it's just it's a dreadful scenario because where are we when it comes to you know what a neighborhood should look like and as we said yes we you know we want bookstores and we want vibrant kiosks and we want flower shops and we we want to support independence and maybe that brings me to a point has there been a sense of a galvanizing element though that you've seen through all of this and and let's let's move to the world of where you can uh, interact and where there is a sense of commerce which is online have you seen customers saying look at sarah you know i i would normally uh you know maybe 60% of my book expenditure would be at Amazon, 40% would be going into your shops. Are you seeing people come to you saying, look, I want to support McNally Jackson, and I'm not going to be spending elsewhere to buy the printed word? I don't know what percentage of books my customers buy from me. The ABA, I think, once did a study that said even your most loyal customers only buy one in seven books from you. That seems low to me from conversations I've had with my customers. But I will say that when this started, we all went into panic because we had not, online had never been a meaningful part of our business. After we closed, I have two designers. I've had two designers working around the clock every day, weekends, making this, our website, quite beautiful and quite wonderful. And our customers, they stood by us. It's been the only thing in this entire depressing time that has been uplifting. They sent us emails. We did. We launched a couple of things. We launched a lifetime membership thing for five hundred dollars. I can't believe how many we sold. It was it was very, very, very encouraging. And I, we, the USPS, a lot of the postal workers became very sick in the beginning. And a lot of the postal service was simply at home. They closed a lot of post offices. And I took over the almost thankless task of driving to all four of my bookstores and one of my stationary stores every day, getting in my car and spending a couple hours going and picking up boxes. We were allowed to have one person in each store and that person would just stay there packing boxes all day from the web. And I'd pack my car full of boxes. Sometimes it was almost like it would take over in the front seat and I'd drive them to the post office and I drop them off at the post office. And when I was drop when I'm dropping the boxes at the post office, sometimes I glimpse a name on a box. And it may be, you know, a friend of a friend who I met once, or it may be, 
you know, my ex-husband's old assistant or, and I just, I glimpse these names and I, I see that in a quiet way, the amount of loyalty that we've inspired, it's moving. And I think it's not enough to pay the rent, but it's been enough for me to at least keep, I had to lay off a lot of people. I laid off a lot of people, but I kept everybody who had worked for the store for more than four years. And those people can still be paid out of the customer orders that we've been getting. We've also had an extraordinary response from schools around us, which was, again, very touching. We've got eight huge online book fairs, which we built websites for each of these schools. And it's a nice way to show support, too. We launched a T-shirt campaign in the first two weeks of the campaign. We've just relaunched it. We sold almost a 1,000 T-shirts, which was touching as well because there's been moments where I where I'm looking at this rising rental debt and thinking I'm not I, I don't know how we can do this I'm not sure how we can ever come back and then I look at what the customers are saying the emails are sending what they're posting on social media about us and I realize that we I have a responsibility that's larger than my fears about rent. I have a responsibility to remain part of the city as I've you know, spent 15 years integrating my bookstores into the fabric of the city. I have a responsibility to fight like hell to keep us alive here. It's galvanizing. Tell me, uh, if we go back to the start of the interview, you, you, talk, uh, you referenced a conversation that you had with, with James Daunt and, of course, most of our listeners will know about that wonderful bookshop, which is around the corner from our offices in London. And of course, James Daunt has, has featured many times in the magazine, probably as, as much as you have, Sarah. But he said to you, there was something dispiriting, you know, wait and see. There's something dispiriting about the world of, of online. What did he mean? And 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 yeah, why is it dispiriting? Because in one way, you've, you've painted a, a beautiful picture that you're able to create access. But what what is unfulfilling about it? Well, I'm, I'm not packing the boxes myself, thank goodness, but I do go to each store every day and I see the person in the store who's packing the boxes. And you're, I'm watching the stores and the stores have always been, I mean, I've always looked at my stores as something that's laid out that anybody who walks in could take. There's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take. I mean, we have a philosophy which is somewhat different than James Don's. James Don's, I do very deep backlist. I cram, I fit every book I can possibly fit in. And so that people can, without making a mess, but I, I, so people can find their own way through. And as the bookstores have been converted to warehouses, now when I see the stores, there's boxes everywhere, there's shipping materials, and you can see it's almost like the store, it's closing up around itself and it's becoming something that's purely functional to one function, which is putting books in boxes. And nobody gets into book selling unless they love people. You have to love people and you have to love books. And those, and it's at the intersection of those two things where your job happens. And when you remove people, you can have some, if you can have some emails with them, but the sheer volume of orders that we're getting where it's an enormous amount of work to keep up with. I mean, people are packing like they work in a warehouse and it's, it's a very, very different job than, than living at the intersection of conversation about books and reading books. Is there a complication as well? And I, I just went through the exercise getting some books to my, my mom in Toronto and I, I, I called Type Up and, and had a conversation with them and said, look, I want to make sure my mom is, is entertained and behaves in the old mill in Toronto. And I said, can you select 40 books for me? And as you said, you can't do that all the time. And they were fulfilling in, in, in a very sort of similar manner out of, out of Toronto. And they, they drove the books around to my mom's house. But it was that dialogue, um, and you know, I obviously didn't want some automated recommendation from any website, and and that was sort of a wonderful experience. But I guess this is 
hard to replicate. And it sounds like at least the good news is you have orders on scale where it is difficult to to do that. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is, is that human component that you cite. We keep on getting pushed to this world of AI, and, and every, not everyone, thankfully not, thinks that this is going to be a future for recommendation and it's going to be a future for customer service. What's your take on that? We're trying to keep that alive. Some of the booksellers we're still working are answering the phone. Some aren't. I'm leaving. They can do whatever they want. I'm leaving it up to them in this horrible time. The amount of work we have is overwhelming, and we don't want to leave customers waiting two weeks before they get their books shipped to them. We're not doing delivery just because it's not. There's there's almost no mechanism for it to happen. That with the, I mean, I'm, it's 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 completely inefficient. And not really safe. I tried to deliver some boxes. At a certain point, I was going to the post office and I was dropping boxes. And I was like, this is ridiculous. These two boxes are within two blocks of here. I can just take them. And I went to the buildings and they, there were no doormen at the building. So I couldn't really get in. So I buzzed the person, but they didn't talk to me. And I went in. I kind of left the box in the foyer where it could have been stolen. And I thought, there are systems for this that I'm, I'm not getting involved with. We did start something on Instagram called Ask a Bookseller. And we have... We had a bookseller working full time just doing book recommendations. You could f- you could fill in sort of a blank saying I want a book like X, Y, and Z, and then she would she would reply with book recommendations for them. She, it was it was a lot. We're just replacing. She was starting to burn out on it because it, doing that for eight hours a day became sort of overwhelming. But so someone else is doing this. So that's that's how we tried to do what the Toronto Bookstore did for your mother. But we do we do have a volume that is it's unmanageable, and we can't afford truly enough enough people right now to handle it without this few of us working. I think there's 20 of us left working, just working flat out. Do you think that bookseller gets replaced though? Uh, or maybe some would argue they are being replaced by artificial intelligence elsewhere. If someone gets burnt out after eight hours on Instagram, might as well just give it to some system that can search keywords. Well, I would never. I mean, that was eight hours for, she did it eight hours a day for two months. I think, <laughs> I think it was understandable. But the, um, I don't see that world. And when I, you know, when I, when I drive around to the stores, I often stop and I sweep the sidewalks and I, I talk to customers who are walking by in the street and they say how much they miss us and they ask about booksellers by name. And I, I, I mean, if we, can, if we can get through, the only thing that would stop us from coming back is our landlords. There's nothing else that could stop us coming back for my business and for most of the businesses I know in New York. And perhaps there'll be some intervention because you're right, we're, we're, there is a crisis of vacancy that has grown across America, except I don't know where it hasn't grown, is Paris. Paris has no vacancy crisis. It's a beautiful example of um, the city supporting its local, its local stores. But at, th- at this point, we have to, I, th- I think... My being in New York during all this time, so many people I know have left and they've gone to their country houses or they've gone to stay with in-laws. And I have been in this city every day and I've been truly in the city because of my post office deliveries. I'm driving from neighborhood to neighborhood. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in all over lower Manhattan. And it's made me love my city more fiercely than I've ever loved it. I feel like lashing myself to the mast of it. And a lot of us had that feeling after September 11th. A lot of us had that feeling after... Hurricane Sandy. And when these moments when New York is truly attacked, the response from its people is passion to keep the city alive. And perhaps that will translate into a very, very positive opening because 9-11, life resumed quite quickly after it. Sandy, life resumed quite quickly after it. But this is this is a long time for us to really ponder what what we've lost in our city. And people do keep talking about whether 
online buying habits will become more entrenched because of this time. And I think it's possible in New York that the opposite will happen. I want to end on a positive note. You know the Monocle reader and listener quite well, and of course, you're one of our best stockists for sure in, in North America. I think a lot of people are listening and they hear the passion and, and people know that you're a fantastic retailer. I think we also have a lot of people who, of course, are rethinking because they're not going to stick around at maybe the insurance company they're working or or they're they're leaving the airline voluntarily or involuntarily. When you think of good retail, Sarah, and I think this is where a lot of people see the passion, that this is the moment that they do want to contribute to the neighborhood. They are going to go and open a shop. They're going to develop some type of service concept, which is integrated into the street. It's part of the community. Off the top, you have, what, what are three great things when you look at great retail, when you look at great service? What would you say to someone? What, what do you have to be delivering? What I've always done in my stores is I've, I've always believed that every person contains multitudes. I do all the buying for all my stores. I don't buy the kids' books, and there's some university press books I don't buy, but I buy almost all the books. And for my stationery stores, I buy all the stationery. I never buy cynically. I always look in myself and everything I bring in, I have to in some way like, even if it's something I wouldn't buy, even if it's a book I wouldn't necessarily read, it has to on some level appeal to me. And if you go into retail, I think with that sort of honesty and that openness, and you never ever buy cynically. Every time I'm trying to train somebody to work with me and they say, well, I don't like it, but people will. I say that's not that's simply not good enough. You can't think that way. You have to you have to come I I I try and curate my stores which although they have tens of thousands of items all of them they're curated not that differently from a magazine where you to a certain degree have to approve everything in the magazine. You wouldn't put something in Monocle you thought was stupid or dumb or force people who you didn't respect you you everything in there is something you respect and for people you respect and i think that if storefront retail is done that way i think it always adds intelligence and depth to the city and the neighborhood in which it lives that's superb are you shipping across the border are you shipping internationally if someone's willing to uh, to pay the postage costs or is it uh, only within the 48 or 50 states at the moment we are, but it is a it is a cost. I mean, it's it's not shipping is not cheap. It's funny. We one thing we realized during this pause of how long it takes to pack an order, compared to sell a book, and we realize how much work the customers have always done by actually going to the shelf, getting the book themselves, and walking it to us, and um, shipping across the border right now. It's it, it's not cheap, but it works. And the USPS, the United States Postal Service has definitely improved its act in the last month or two and is working much faster. So it's possible, certainly possible. Well, hopefully some of our listeners and of course, regular readers that will be coming your way. Wish you all the best of luck and we'll of course be checking in over the months to come. My thanks to Sarah McNally for joining us for this week's episode of the Chiefs edition of The Big Interview. I might also mention that she's a fellow Winnipegger like me. The Big Interview was produced by Paige Reynolds and edited by Jack Jewers. I'm Tyler Brulé in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening. Music.